You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Activists return to DDoS, the Library of Congress's hit, AKP emails continue to receive scrutiny, a look at the jihadist toolbox, some quick takes on automotive cybersecurity as the industry moves toward fully autonomous cars. Vossener and the DCMA still aren't getting much industry love, and we talk to the lawyers about security clearances and the constitutionality of stingrays. The cell phone intercept tools, not the fish. The fish are completely constitutional. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire Summary and Week in Review for Friday, July 22, 2016. Ransomware and distributed denial of service have been the principal trends in cybercrime this year, and an Akamai study of the second suggests that criminals may be preparing long-duration campaigns. Technicians who can help enterprises mitigate DDoS attacks are in high demand, both by enterprises and by security service providers. In some cases, the denial-of-service attacks are done with a criminal objective, often extortion of businesses dependent upon reliable access to their sites. Other attacks are hacktivist in motivation. The U.S. Library of Congress has acknowledged that it sustained one such DDoS attack that began Sunday. Turk hack team claimed responsibility on a message board, but that attribution is unconfirmed. Turk Hack Team is a patriotic hacktivist group. They've previously been active against Chinese sites in protest against the maltreatment of ethnic Turkic peoples they perceive in the People's Republic of China. The Library of Congress seems likely to be a simple, high-profile target of opportunity. The attack has been contained and is now under investigation. Observers continue to sift through the hacked AKP emails as the Turkish government firmly reestablishes control over the country. The pastebin dump in which they were exposed is accompanied by the hacker's explanation of his motives, sympathy with the frustrated aspirations of some groups within Turkey. Most agree that Phineas Fisher is indeed behind the hack. Flashpoint has released a report detailing the technical toolkits being used online by jihadists adhering to ISIS and its competitors. The report is interesting in the clarity of its recognition that ISIS is fundamentally, for now, engaged in information operations. While the study acknowledges that ISIS has expansive aspirations to extensive cyber attack capabilities, the jihadist core requirement remains, quote, consistent channels through which they can release propaganda, end quote. And that propaganda is fundamentally inspirational and persuasive. Flashpoint sees the jihadist technologies, therefore, as falling into these categories. Secure browsers, virtual private networks and proxy services, protected email services, 
mobile security applications, encrypted messengers, and mobile propaganda applications. So, while ISIS's aspirations to a true offensive cyber capability cannot prudently be overlooked by the civilized world security and intelligence services, for now the caliphate is more concerned with ensuring its ability to get its message out. Can you keep a secret? For many in the cybersecurity world, the answer is yes, and that ability is, for some, put to good use through a government security clearance. Tom Cole is an attorney with the law firm of Talkin and O, and we asked him to take us through some of the basics of getting cleared. So the government uh, does an evaluation to decide whether or not, and this is the standard that they use, it is clearly consistent with the government interest to entrust an individual with uh, the government's secrets. And there are different classifications uh, from, you know, literally just personnel information, uh, social security numbers and dates of birth and things of that nature, uh, to the highest level, which is uh, top secret uh, SCI, which is uh, a mechanism by which the government separates uh, apart different pieces of, of protected information amongst different groups so that um, one person may know one bit of that information, another person may know another part, but rarely does one individual know all of the different aspects of, of a government program. So if you find yourself up for a job where a clearance is required, you begin with an application, which gets submitted to an agency for review. There will be different levels of investigation. Uh, the, the slightest will be an interview with a government investigator. And then the, heightened, the most heightened level of uh, clearance, you'll have a polygraph. Um, and there are within that different levels of polygraph, whether it is uh, full scope or a lifestyle, um, and they'll ask you questions, you know, <laughs> that they often start with, before they even hook you up to a machine saying, tell me something that you are concerned about discussing with me today. And uh, that is when people normally just say all of their life secrets all at once uh, before they even get hooked up. Little do they know that once they are hooked up, they're going to get follow-up questions about everything that they just said. I asked Tom Cole to describe some of the most common disqualifiers he sees. Let me start with the one that most people don't appreciate, and that is significant debt. Um, normally, if an individual has over $20,000 in delinquent debt, meaning over 90 days due, uh, that will trigger a denial. Uh, and, and that can be in, in a circumstance where a credit card is shared with a spouse and they're not aware that they have this debt hanging out there. Um, and I, I won't say those are common, but they happen enough and, and they are more often than not a surprise to the applicant when they happen. What also happens is a lot of people think that if they've ever used uh, drugs, if they have any you know, offense in their in their background that they will disqualify themselves from a clearance. And I can tell you that um, more often than not, uh, depending on the passage of time, past indiscretions will not disqualify someone from a clearance. So um, those people that tell themselves, oh, I could never have a clearance because I smoked pot in college, that is just not the case. Now, the cases that I most often see are those who have some repeat behavior um, such as DUIs, DWIs, uh, drunken disorderlies, or drug offenses. And one thing you'll see over and over again is the phrase pattern of behavior, because the government understands that people, that we're all flawed and we've all made mistakes in our past, and no clearances is likely to be denied for a one-off experience. But if an individual shows a pattern of poor judgment and a pattern of substance abuse that 
it, it seems to indicate they're not even in control of their own lives. Well, that is when the government's going to say, you might be a perfectly fine individual, but we can't trust you with our secrets because we don't know if when you are inebriated or when you are exercising this pattern of bad judgment, if that's going to then uh, implicate the, the government's concerns. What about things like adultery? So adultery actually does come up, but normally only comes up in two circumstances. One is if the adultery is committed while the individual is in the armed services, because adultery is actually a uh, it's it's not necessarily a criminal offense, although it is uh, identified in the uh, military justice code. But you can be written up and brought before a tribunal for adultery and the government's concern is not so much the adultery itself, but rather that you knew that this was a rule that you had to follow and yet you breached it anyway. And that is where the government's concern comes in. So a tendency not to follow the rules. The other circumstance where adultery may come into play is if the individual is susceptible to blackmail. So the adultery itself, again, is not the concern. But but if the individual and I've seen this before, if the individual is making payments to someone to not disclose that adultery or is under threat that that will be disclosed, particularly if they are living a, a lifestyle that they're prominent in their church, as an example, where that disclosure could have consequences outside of ruining their marriage. Um, the government is very concerned about those instances because, one, that is a common area of compromise uh, to, to sort of trap someone in that way and then have that information and use that to extract information. Uh, and two, again, it goes back to that issue of judgment of what, what did you do to get yourself into this circumstance and, and why weren't you thinking better about that when you did it? Based on his experience, Mr. Cole offers some advice for making your way through the process. I'd say the first thing is, is not to disqualify yourself. I think, uh, unfortunately, so many people are just insecure about the process and concerned about being denied that they won't even begin the application process. Um, the second uh, most important piece of advice is to know yourself and to be truthful with yourself in terms of your background, because the more the more you understand about your, the areas of concern um, and the more forthright, again, without disclosing too much, but the more forthright you are about past offenses, past troubles, um, the better off you're going to be later in the process, because the government investigator at the very least will say this person is telling me the absolute truth to the extent that they that they know it. Um, because the worst scenario is when there's a surprise, because chances are the applicant has not disclosed it. Uh, chances are it is much more serious than the applicant had originally considered. Uh, and also you have the shortest amount of time to mitigate against it. Um, if an applicant knows that they have a DUI, uh, before they even submit the application, they can go into AA and complete abstinence from alcohol. And by the time it eventually gets to an area where the clearance is, is at issue, they can say, look, I've done this to mitigate the government's concern even before my clearance was denied. That's Tom Cole. He's an attorney with the Maryland law firm of Talkin and O. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben had an interesting uh, case recently uh, in the uh, U.S. Southern District of New York about a Stingray device. Uh, Important ruling here. Before we dig into that, explain to our audience what are we talking about when we're talking about a Stingray device. So Stingrays are known as cell site simulators. And what they do is they mimic cell phone towers and basically trick cell phones in the area to transmit identifying pings, so to speak, uh, back to the devices. And the consequence of this is that law enforcement are able to track a suspect's phone, even though the suspect is unaware that they're revealing location information. So it's a a very uh, potentially important tool for law enforcement uh, to get location identifying information to use as evidence in, in criminal trials. All right, so let's move into this case in the Southern District of New York. What happened here? A U.S. District Judge by the name of William Pauley decided that uh, the the defendant in this case, rights were violated when the Drug Enforcement Administration, the U.S. DEA, uh, was able to use this device without a warrant. This judge, just for a little context, was the one that actually upheld the uh, bulk phone metadata program as constitutional a couple of years ago, so it's significant that this judge would come to such a, a different conclusion in this case. He uh, used the precedent of a case called Kylo v. United States. And in that case, law enforcement used a thermal imaging device to figure out how much heat was being emitted from a suspect's home to determine whether that suspect was uh, using marijuana. And the Supreme Court held in that case that because that technology was not widely available to the public, a person should have a reasonable expectation of privacy that it will not be used against them. And as we know from our previous discussions, that is the standard for whether there is a search under the Fourth Amendment, whether somebody's reasonable expectation of privacy uh, has been violated. And I think just uh, Judge Pauly just went on the same path here. This is a uh, technology that is not widely available. The suspect 
would not know or should not have known that he would have been revealing identifying information about his location. In that sense, it violates the reasonable expectation of privacy, and it's a search for Fourth Amendment purposes. Now, I should know that this just means that from now on, law enforcement would have to get a warrant. It's not prohibiting stingray searches, but it does add a level of judicial oversight. Uh, law enforcement will now have to go to a, a magistrate and get a warrant uh, for these devices. And is, is there a sense that they'll appeal? Is this something that we could see go to the Supreme Court? I think it's very possible. The uh, Department of Justice has said that they're looking into appeals. Uh, I think this is an issue that's going to come up in other circuits. We've already seen it here in Maryland. The Maryland Appeals Court uh, in March was the first uh, appellate court to review evidence obtained using a Stingray device and was the first to suppress that evidence. This was a state appellate court, and the case here in New York was in the federal appellate courts. I think if we see uh, disagreements among uh, federal courts themselves and between state and federal courts, this is definitely an issue that could make its way to the Supreme Court. All right, Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. We'll keep an eye on it. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. The CyberWire is covering the Billington Automotive Cybersecurity Summit in Detroit today. We'll have a full report Monday after the conference closes. But for now, two interesting themes are the automotive industry's full-throated embrace of the white hat hacking community and of the FBI's direct promise to treat as victims companies whose networks or products are hacked. That promise goes surprisingly far. A bureau speaker directly said that the FBI, quote, would not provide opinion or commentary, end quote, to regulatory bodies. Concerns that going to law enforcement for help when you're hacked amounts to inviting nemesises into one's business have exerted a chilling effect on reporting of cybercrime. Today's session suggests that the Department of Justice wishes to go out of its way to bring companies in from the cold. Returning to the embrace of the white hats, the automotive industry also seems to have embraced those white hats in the form of crowdsourced bug hunting for bounties. How this gig economy form of penetration testing and vulnerability research will play out in terms of ancillary issues such as legal liability remains to be worked out, but the industry as a whole seems set on the bug bounty road. Many of the sessions have been discussing the cybersecurity best practices released yesterday by the Auto ISAC. Its recommendations fall into seven categories. Governance, risk assessment and management, security by design, threat detection and protection, incident response and recovery, training and awareness, and collaboration and engagement with appropriate third parties. Their implementation is likely to be flexible. Many speakers express satisfaction that the automobile industry evolved these best practices before it sustained a major successful cyber attack. 
Leaving Detroit and that part of the Internet of Things that you can ride in, we turn to the portion that you live in, the smart home. The Tor Project has turned its attention to ways of helping secure the devices in smart homes by rendering them more anonymous, which is to say less accessible to the ministrations of attackers. Finally, some cyber regulatory systems still can't get much love from the security industry. Both the Vossener Cyber Arms Control Regime and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DCMA, remain unpopular. Industry still isn't happy with how Vossener is shaping up, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation has initiated a court challenge to the DCMA. In both cases, people see a worrisome tendency to inhibit, if not criminalize, security research. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Thank you.